Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast. And woo, lad, I have a banger of an episode with Sid at Captain Sid with an H at the end on Twitter, who rode around the entire country visiting all these Bitcoin meetups, going to a bunch of different places, interacting with a ton of plebs. And he brings awesome, awesome insights on what is going on all around the country and in different Bitcoin spaces. So be sure to check it out and listen to that and follow him on Twitter because he has a docu-series coming out in the near, near future that he's working on with Swan Bitcoin. Uh, but outside of that, we also get into a bunch of current event stories. Michael Saylor stepping down as CEO of MicroStrategy, the potential of the Chinese and Taiwan conflict nearing how that could affect Bitcoin, another LATAM country starting a Bitcoin hub in Honduras, Solana being hacked, New York Times writing on Swan Bitcoin and Corey Clipston, and lastly, Riot and other miners dropping production due to the Texas heat. So be sure to tune in as this one's a banger. And as always, this is not financial advice. I'm whispering it. I don't know why. Because it's not financial advice. So remember, everything you hear in this episode is strictly for opinion and entertainment purposes only. It's not financial advice. Now let's get into the episode. Bing bong. I am live with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast. I'm doing another road game. I'm coming live from the financial summit here in the Dominican Republic. But I have a very special guest who's not here with me in the Dominican Republic, but uh, Sid, how are you doing today? Good, man. How are you? How's the weather down there? Yeah, it's great. I mean, uh, you know, I can't complain on a resort, uh, you know, out here on the beach, connecting with a lot of people and just, uh, yeah, I mean, no complaints here. I got to uh, sit on a panel today with Ben Gagnon of BitFarms, or a Bit, yeah, uh, BitFarms. So, uh, yeah, just overall just cool experiences and uh yeah, but let's get into you. So uh, tell me a little bit about your orange pill story and how you found Bitcoin. Yeah, so I think for a lot of people, I, kind of a similar story it kind of happened in phases for me. So I came at Bitcoin from uh, the technology perspective. I'm not a developer, but I was really interested in this idea of non-copyable digital property. So I had discovered Bitcoin while I was in school. I, was, I studied the history and sociology of science and technology. So really strange out there history degree, a lot of writing and reading uh, and exposure to these emerging technologies and thinking about how might these impact the world. And Bitcoin was one of the technologies that I came across. But I kind of read about it and was interested in it in sort of 2016, 2017. But I, I never really thought of it as a financial technology. I just thought of it as this cool infrastructure for the internet. And so I got really deep into the crypto space for a while. I, uh, my first Bitcoin that I ever bought was in 2017. And it, the only reason I bought it is because I was talking about this concept to all my um, roommates at the time. And one of them finally stopped me and was like, dude, do you even 
own any Bitcoin. Like you won't shut up about this, but I don't think you even have any. So I thought, well, I should probably put my money where my mouth is. And that's when I started looking at the markets of Bitcoin. I was like, whoa, this thing goes up in value a ton. It's really volatile. And I was thankful and very lucky to have experienced the upside. And then I sold out at the top of uh, uh, like January 2018 and quit my job. And I thought I need a bunch of cash because I'm going to quit my job and go work on Bitcoin and in this whole crypto space. So most of 2018, I spent uh, working on fundraising for a mining farm, doing a bunch of random projects within the crypto space. I learned a lot about proof of work at that time. And that started me down the journey of Bitcoin only as I started to realize if you don't have proof of work, the rest of it, it it's pretty much all vaporware. Um, it is all vaporware. I mean, once you understand that, you start to realize all this thing is, is a database. And if you don't have rules without rulers, that can't be rules that can't be broken, then there's no point. Like you should just probably be doing this on a database. And the whole blockchain thing is a lot of vaporware. So once I realized that, I started focusing more on Ethereum and Bitcoin. And then as I was going to different conferences, I went to a lot of ETH events. I was living in New York at the time. And I started to think these this conversation is not really what I'm interested in. People were talking a lot about buzzwords and high-minded DeFi stuff and revolutionizing supply chains and all these things. But there was very little concern or understanding even of how the protocol works on a base layer and what matters as opposed to doing this on a database. You know, what are the real problems that we're solving here? There was a lot of excitement around investing in ICOs and making a bunch of money. So then I went to Bitcoin 2019, the first Bitcoin conference, I think that Bitcoin Magazine put on. And I realized these are my people. This is what I'm interested in. These people all understand why this thing matters and what's actually different about it than a regular database. So then I started going down the Bitcoin only path and it took me until late 2019 to really connect it to fiat money and start to understand the problem that Bitcoin solves. So I'm, I'm glad I kept following it, but I always have this feeling like this is just a hammer in search of a nail. It's looking for a problem to solve. It's really interesting, but where's the problem? And I uh, discovered a YouTube series called Hidden Secrets of Money from a gold bug named Mike Maloney. And that's when it started to click all these questions that I had had going all the way back to high school about basic economics that were taught in higher education and how most of it is complete BS. And it started to make more sense once I understood the role of fiat money and how fiat money works and what it does to an economy. And that's when I started going really full down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and not caring about anything else. And now I feel like I really have a strong passion and understanding of why this thing is so transformational, at, le at least a, a motivation to figure out even more about why. Yeah. So you, I mean, you dove into a lot there and that's awesome. You know, you went through the, the entire story, but I think the thing that I really took back from there was your proof of work, right? You, so you really went through your entire process, you know, everybody, I think kind of has maybe that shit coin journey or, or goes through that and kind of gets a little curious uh, about the other coins and, and everything like that. But, you know, it, it really took me back, like why you really felt that you need to dive in more into Bitcoin. And it's really about the community. 
And on that note, you know, you did something that was amazing. You drove around on a Harley um, to a bunch of different Bitcoin meetups. So describe the motivation behind that. And uh, then we can dive a little bit more into your experience. Yeah. So I have been living out of the U.S. for the past three years, really, since the end of 2019. And so I kind of missed everything that happened in 2020 and 2021. And I saw most of that through Twitter and through the internet. And it was a really like, honestly, sickening experience to watch the country that I grew up in through a medium that really, uh, as a lot of online mediums do, it exacerbates the, the clickbaity extremes. And so I felt this feeling like, not only do I want to come home and see my friends and family, but I want to see what has happened to America and actually see America on the ground rather than watching it through Twitter. And I had this feeling as well about the Bitcoin community. There's so much going on on Twitter and I meet a lot of people and I learn a lot, but there's also a lot of negativity. I felt like I sometimes I'd close Twitter after getting sucked into it for 30 minutes and just feel so depressed about what is the state of the world. So I thought, what better way to figure out what that state is than to go meet people in person, go to meetups, learn more about what America has become and what the Bitcoin community is like in person. So I'd been seeing on Twitter all these Bitcoin meetups popping up all over the country. And when I left, there weren't that many. And now there's, I don't know, 50 or 60 at least around the US that have Twitter accounts and meetup pages and regular attendance. So I thought, hell, I can like link up a lot of these and and make a trip out of this so i fell in love with riding motorcycles when i was overseas and thought i'm gonna buy a bike and go link up bitcoin meetups so i covered about eleven thousand miles and over 30 meetups in three months starting at bitcoin 2022 and worked with a couple companies to do it as well so i raised some money and you know, made it more than just me on a bike. So I worked with Swan Bitcoin, Unchained Capital, Bitcoin Magazine, and Upstream Data. So they all pitched in money and support. And Swan's going to be making a like a YouTube docu-series out of the trip that'll hopefully, my goal is to amplify more of this grassroots Bitcoin community that's being created through these meetups. So that's kind of what I'm going for with, with the content that'll come out after the ride. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like you, like you said it, right? So you went through the grassroots movement. A lot of big cities have these big giant meetups, but there's also, you know, a lot of these smaller cities that have, you know, dedicated 10 under, uh, 10 or under members that just come weekly. Uh, but I think, you know, the grassroots movement is really what makes Bitcoin special, right? You get a lot of these plebs out there who, uh, you know, maybe have like 20 followers or something, but are extremely knowledgeable on everything there is Bitcoin and have gone down the rabbit hole and, uh, you know, are really dedicated to the space and, and making uh, things better about it. Um, so what was your favorite part? Do you have like a specific moment that really stands out on that journey? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. There's too many moments to count, honestly. Um, I will say one thing that kind of surprised me on the trip that pleasantly surprised me. And I had many, many of these moments was how many Bitcoiners opened up their homes and let me stay with them, uh, stay with their families, crash on their couch or their, uh, or their spare bedroom. 
when I got into this space, I kind of first learned a lot about security and I fell really deep down the rabbit hole of everyone wants your Bitcoin. If you talk about it, people will come after you and stab you to get your hardware wallets and everything. So I came at it from this really paranoid perspective. And I guess I kind of thought everyone else has a similar perspective. And I think that's a valid one and security is extremely important. But as I went to different meetups, I learned that in this community, your reputation goes really far. So the further and further I went on the trip and people could see that I had been to all these places and I'd stayed with people, the more and more offers I got, like, hey, if you're coming through my city, you can crash in my house. And I got a lot of people um, offering up places to stay, which helped me out a ton cost wise. And then I also got to meet and hang out with and spend more time with so many awesome Bitcoiners. So there's kind of this, this strange, like dichotomy where I feel like Bitcoiners are, they live by that. Don't trust verify ethos very strongly, but once they verified or once they trust, they're very trusting. And I love that about a community because I'm very much like that as well. Like I don't trust people immediately, but once you've earned my trust, it's, it goes a long way. Um, and I think it's difficult to do that in, in other communities, you know, other than like my close friends, most people are not very open with their homes like that. And, and I think rightfully so, but it's really refreshing to get that from the Bitcoin community. Yeah, exactly. And so you travel to, you know, not only big and small towns, um, but, you know, everywhere in between. And it, it seems like, you know, it was very welcoming and, and everybody was, you know, great. And that's another thing I love about the Bitcoin community. You know, it seems like anytime I reach out to anybody or I talk to anybody, whether it's podcast or just advice or, or something like that, you know, I always seem to get a response no matter how big or small the following. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll just echo that sentiment that everything uh, related to the Bitcoin community seems like lifting each other up. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily sure where you grew up, but uh, how did you feel like the differences between the like big meetups were compared to like the small meetups? Uh, did you kind of notice, I guess, a, maybe a difference in vibe? Um, did it kind of have to deal with geographics or anything like that? Or was it just, uh, you know, just kind of unique place to place? It was very unique place to place. Um, the bigger, I think the bigger and the smaller meetups kind of divide in a way that most people wouldn't understand. The bigger meetups are a little more impersonal. They're more organized. The big ones that I went to were like Austin and Houston come to mind, Minneapolis. And there's just so many people that there has to be either some kind of format or you can't really go as deep with as many people as you want to. Whereas the smaller meetups, um, they're, they're a lot more like a group of friends that gets together regularly. And then occasionally you'll have one or two new people, which every meetup organizer, I, I tried to ask them about what is the makeup of your meetup? And they would say, you know, it's, there's a core group of regulars. That's anywhere from 50 to 80% of people that are there every week or month or whatever it is. And then there'll be some new people. So they'll get new people who understand Bitcoin already and are just looking for a meetup and they usually become regulars pretty fast. And they'll always get a couple new people to the space who come in and they're like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. Tell me about it. 
And that was something I think I underappreciated about meetups before I left that there's a lot of people that come to these meetups, big and small, who are just trying to learn. And I think myself and a lot of people who are early in Bitcoin are people who learn from the internet. And I think you had to, because there wasn't really a way to learn otherwise. You had to learn about Bitcoin by reading a bunch of articles and watching a bunch of videos and things. But there are people who do not learn like that and they want to sit down with someone and look them in the eyes and ask them questions about this because that's how they're going to start to trust it and know that they're not getting scammed or uh, that, you know, that's just the way they they learn, I guess, by asking questions and going back and forth rather than researching things and looking online. So that's been like a really cool aspect of meetups, both large and small, just new people coming into the space and kind of learning the way that that they find comfortable to learn. Yeah, so you've been interacting with quite a few different people, right? And you're you're talking about that interpersonal react or uh, the interpersonal interaction, you know, to kind of help people learn. And one thing that really stands out is I, I remember uh, talking to Nick at Bitcoin Stoa, um, and he was talking about you know the trucking convoy once upon a time when he was like going through all that, and he said you know to get the truckers on board it, he really needed to develop that interpersonal relationship, that trust factor. You know, it's just like kind of like you were saying earlier that people need to trust, not verify, or uh, yeah, trust, not verify, and and all that, or verify, not trust, or whatever, and uh, you know, and, and things like that, and, and so. I think that that trust factor, once you get to know somebody, uh, really helps orange pill and educate, you know, a little bit quicker than maybe uh, learning on the internet and, you know, so that people learn in different ways. So in your experience in interacting with these people that were kind of new along the lines of uh, coming to these meetups, did you see it like, all right, well, they're actually starting to pick up, you know, Bitcoin a little bit quicker than, than maybe you felt that you did, or are they kind of understanding some of the concepts a little bit quicker or how did you kind of see that, I guess, dynamic work out? Yeah. So I kind of had this feeling that over time, as there's more and more content about Bitcoin, it will become easier and easier for people to grasp it. And I'm starting to think that's not that true. It's still just as difficult to, understand it as it was five years ago. Yes, there's more to read and more content out there, but just absorbing the ideas, they're so different, I think, than what you hear all around you otherwise, that you have to find the the person or piece of content or whatever that speaks to you in a way that you understand. And that's a very personal thing. So it's very difficult to just send everyone one article or give everyone one pitch and have them understand it immediately. It has to really hit on what are they interested in? Um, what problems do they face in their life? And I found a lot of success when I was talking to new people, rather than trying to explain what Bitcoin is, or uh, talk about how Bitcoin works, which is what a lot of like basic Bitcoin content does. I just start with what do they do? What are they interested in? Where uh, do they feel pain in their life in, in the world today? Where do they see problems? And then try to relate those back to the problems that Bitcoin solves. Try to relate those back to markets, back to honesty, truth, and then show them how Bitcoin bolsters those things. 
And that's been a more successful, if more roundabout, but more successful way at getting people to really understand why Bitcoin matters. Otherwise, I had a few successful conversations where people were just really interested and I think figured, well, I'm sitting next to some guy who seems like he knows a lot about this, so I'll ask him a bunch of questions. And those people, I think they're going to figure it out anyway, because they're going to, once they're curious, they're going to read and research and ask people. And as long as there are Bitcoiners around, they're going to find out what's really going on. But uh, a lot of people do not just have that natural curiosity about Bitcoin. They need to see that it relates to something else that they care about in their life. And once they see that connection, then I think it makes a lot more sense to people and people have more of a motivation to figure out what this thing is. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100% there. And you made a lot of great points. Um, but on that note, on uh, the entire ride as a whole, just looking back and reflecting, um, you know, you kind of went over the differences and, and things like that. But, but what's the biggest takeaway, whether it's like some self-reflection or, um, you know, something about the Bitcoin community? What is like your biggest takeaway that, you know, you, you rode around a motorcycle for what, 11,000 uh, 11, miles, you said, across the entire country? It's a lot of alone time, but also a lot of interaction. Um, so what, uh, I guess, what do you think changed for you personally? And what was your biggest takeaway from this entire journey? Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing for me was just understanding that there is so much more to Bitcoin than the online communities that are there. And there are real in-person communities being built. And I think it's worth investing a lot more time and energy into building those communities. And it doesn't really have to be that difficult. I think a, a lot of people maybe get stopped on starting a meetup because they think, you know, they look at Austin's meetup or something. They think, how am I going to attract all these people? I need a venue. I need all this stuff. 99% of meetups I went to were started by a couple people who went to a bar once a month for three, four months and slowly gained people. And they all grow in this grassroots way. They're not going out there and firing and, and doing big talks and all these things. They get to that point, certainly. And as people come on, I found a lot of people are thinking, well, can we go to local businesses? Should we put flyers around? Should we think about what other groups, like how we can advertise this? But it happens in a very volunteer, natural, spontaneous way. It's not like it's all on the burden of the organizer to make all this happen. So long story short, I think what I learned this meetup is it's really important to have this in-person connection around Bitcoin. And if you're one of these Bitcoiners that's listening to all the podcasts and on Twitter and all this, just know that there is so much more out there um, and so much more rewarding things than just what you can find on the internet. And I would encourage you to go find your local meetup, or if you don't have one near you, start one, go visit one, go to a small conference where you can really get in a, a tight net space and meet people one-on-one -on -one and have long, deep conversations. This is where I've seen, like we talk about this circular economy idea, meetups is where it's actually happening. People come from their farm and they bring maple syrup or bacon or whatever they're growing on their farm and they're selling it to other Bitcoiners for sat. I'm seeing that happen a lot. I'm seeing Bitcoiners 
get together and work on projects that are Bitcoin related. And then maybe one of them comes over and helps someone else build and work on their house, like work on another non-Bitcoin related project. So we're building like a really real network here of people who are helping each other out in very physical ways. And I think that's, you know, whether we think about pushing Bitcoin forward or not, that's just a really good thing for humanity to have outside of Bitcoin. I agree with you 100%. And yeah, I I, I want to just echo all these sentiments that you're that you're making. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how I ended up here on a panel too. And it like it all happened within the past couple of weeks. And it's all just through those connections and the interpersonal connections too. Um, you know, my just going to meetups and everything like that has opened up some doors for me. And, and I would definitely encourage people, especially, you know, after what we were locked down for a year and a half, two years or so, uh, that interpersonal connection, I think everybody's kind of missing. And, uh, you know, some people either maybe lost friends or, you know, drifted apart just from not being able to see all these people. But there's a lot of people out there that are looking for that interpersonal connection and they're finding it at Bitcoin meetups and, so uh, I think what you did was awesome, and it really shed a light on all the Bitcoin meetups like around the country, big and small. And I think, uh, you know, just from there, it's, it's going to help build a lot of these uh, meetups and make them bigger and even, you know, elevate the Austins and the Nashvilles and the other big ones that they have going on, too. So good on you for all that. And uh, I can't wait to see that documentary. Do you know or the docuseries? Do you know when that's uh, projected to come out? Not sure yet. I'm still talking to Swan about what the format of that is going to be. Uh, they did do a segment in the Hard Money Show with Nat Brunel. So there's like a three, four minute segment about the trip that just uses all the content that I put together, just clips of it. Their team is incredible. So whenever it does come out, it's going to be worth the wait. Uh, they've built a, just an amazing team of producers and story story writers and, and all sorts of people to put together like really top notch production because my skills are not that great, but they made that segment look incredible. I have no film, audio, anything skills, and they made the segment look incredible. So they're going to do something really great when, they, when they're able to. Awesome. Definitely looking forward to that coming out. And then, uh, so on that note, let's move on to some of these current event stories. So uh, the big story kind of circling around Bitcoin Twitter and even, you know, financial Twitter is that Michael Saylor stepped down as CEO of MicroStrategy uh, to, uh, quote, focus more on Bitcoin. Uh, so obviously, Saylor is a big Bitcoin maximalist, former CEO. He's got micro MicroStrategy essentially being a Bitcoin spot ETF at this point because, you know, of how much they hold. Uh, and everything like that. But uh, their former president, Fong Lee, is now stepping into Sailor's role as CEO. Um, and so Sailor, obviously a huge advocate for the Bitcoin space. So what do you think that this all means? Uh, Sailor kind of stepping down as uh, CEO to, quote, focus more on Bitcoin. Are you kind of in the camp that you think, you know, this is great for Bitcoin because he is kind of distracted a little bit about his company? Or do you think that this was more so, I guess, a strategic move by the company to kind of uh, help with revenue, even though, you know, there, there are some bears out there that probably say, you know, the, that was going around earlier that the cost basis of MicroStrategy's Bitcoin, uh, they, they've lost on paper, right? So um, do you think it was more so, uh, I, I guess, maybe shareholders kind of forcing this move? Or do you think it's more so just Sailor 
wanting to go to something towards, you know, that, that he enjoys a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it, it really could be either. I don't know. I don't pretend to know like whether what's going on behind the doors of the company, whether he got pushed out or he chose to move on or whatever, but I think it's good for Bitcoin. I think everything is good for Bitcoin for that matter. But I like that. Uh, I think he does a really good job of articulating and Bitcoin's problem or not Bitcoin's problem, but the problem that Bitcoin solves, the huge problem that a lot of people who are focused on Bitcoin um, and a lot of content that's focused on Bitcoin doesn't, I think, explain well enough. He explains it really well and he explains it with incredible authority because he's run a company from zero to large publicly traded companies. So he's seen how all of this financial infrastructure works and he's been in it. He's been in the trenches. So his perspective really makes sense and resonates well, I think, with people who know that infrastructure or have seen it from some angle, whether that's trading or working as a director of a public company or in finance or whatever, his points make a ton of sense. Like I, I sent these articles to my parents who are not really in finance, but they've managed their own money for retirement, that kind of thing. And Michael Saylor's words were the first ones that really clued them into why this matters. I'd sent them a lot of stuff about what Bitcoin is, but that wasn't really that interesting to them. What was interesting is what are we going to do to stay secure for retirement? And these words made a lot of sense. The price action moving up and down, I think, still really distracts people because it's such a visceral thing, especially when you buy it and you watch it crash. You're like, well, shit, that didn't work out so well. So I don't care what Michael Saylor says or anyone else. The proof is in the pudding and in the price. So and that may have been what the shareholders said to him. Who knows? But. I think Michael Siller understands this is not a short-term trade. This is a long-term thing. So I don't really think it's a, you know, a big um, problem for the company or anything. They'll be fine and, and he'll be fine. And hopefully he'll create more content around Bitcoin, do more advocacy around it and more education. Yeah. You know, I agree with you there. I, I think it's good for Bitcoin. I'm not sure about it, how it is for, for micro strategy uh, just because I think, no, I, I saw, you know, you, you see all the interviews with Michael Saylor, um, you know, Bitcoin Twitter kind of circulates them around. But at the end of the day, like, I, I don't know if I've really seen him do an interview, um, at least since I've seen him pop on the scene about micro strategy and what they do. Um, so you know, I didn't even know for like the longest time what micro strategy honestly did uh, outside of Bitcoin. Um, but you know, I think uh, I think it's good that he's going to kind of focus more more so on the Bitcoin strategy. I think he's explained to shareholders, you know, this is like a long term play. You could see some volatility, see it go down. Um, you know, I know he always says in his interviews, if you've hold, held Bitcoin for, I think it's either four or five years, you've never lost any money. Um, and so, what this is maybe year one or, or two um, that they've held Bitcoin. So uh, they still got some ways until. Uh, you know, that, that they can keep buying and, and doing other things like that. Um, and I think him just kind of continuing to hone in that strategy and execute that over the long term is obviously going to be better for micro strategy in the long run. In the short term, you know, you never know. I mean, I, I think we saw, you know, Elon uh, sell his Bitcoin at, at Tesla 
And, you know, obviously Bitcoiners have their opinions on Elon and, and what he thinks about Bitcoin and everything like that. But, you know, I think uh, I, I talked about this on a lot, our previous podcast. I think he sold some of his Bitcoin even at a loss just to show that his company wasn't, uh, you know, missing earnings by, you know, a significant amount. So I think these CEOs in these publicly traded companies, when it comes to their Bitcoin strategy, like not everything is like super black and white. There's a lot of gray area in there. And so, you know, I think it's good for Sailor to kind of move away from that. But I just don't know, like, you know, like you said, it's kind of hard to know what's going on behind the scenes. But to me, it raises a lot of questions as to you know why this actually happened. Um, so maybe we'll hear more details coming out later. Uh, but, uh, you know, for now, I think it, it is a good positive move for Bitcoin as a whole. All right. Now, now let's move on to the next story. So. Um, this is kind of along the lines of more like a macroeconomics uh, kind of topic, but the China and Taiwan conflict seems to be very, very close. Um, so we've had, uh, I, I think I've talked about this, you know, previously for the past maybe two or three months, it's kind of been on the radar ever since Russia invaded the Ukraine. But I think my biggest worry when it comes to Bitcoin on here is that, uh, Taiwan semiconductors and a lot of other of these chip manufacturers have uh, plants in Taiwan or are some sort of plant overseas, and that this potential conflict could, uh, you know, affect not only uh, just chips for everyday vehicles like automobiles, you know, computers, what have you, but also for Bitcoin miners, which have already been pretty difficult to get a hold of, and everything's been kind of moving slowly supply chain wise. So uh, do you, uh, you know, as like as far as like mining with the hash rate, right, we've seen a lot of things happen uh, in the past where, you know, you had the China FUD kind of shutting down Bitcoin mining, shutting down almost half of the, the hash rate and things like that. Do you think that, you know, maybe a potential of, you know, some macroeconomic cases like this um, and some other maybe other black swan events uh, you, you know, we, we, Bitcoin's kind of persisted through that, but does it still worry you a lot of these, uh, big, like giant events that Bitcoin might not make it through, or do you still kind of have the feeling now that, uh, you know, the network is, is going to continue. Plebs are going to find a way and, uh, you know, Bitcoin's going to keep trucking on. Yeah, I think only time will tell, but the way that Bitcoin has grown from this kind of science experiment from a anonymous cryptographer all the way to a massive asset that you know huge news organizations are talking about all the time that there's all this content about that there are people buying every day all over the world it's already come so massively far that it doesn't feel like you know, to go to hyper Bitcoinization is that much further to me, although it feels it probably is a hell of a lot further. Uh, it just seeing it go and hearing, you know, knowing that it went from nothing to where it is now, I have a lot more confidence going forward that a shock like, you know, all the semiconductor plants go offline at once will not destroy Bitcoin. Because to me, it, you know, the way that the difficulty adjustment works and mining, it Bitcoin naturally adapts to these shrinks. 
and to completely knock it out is it's like an idea. It is exactly like an idea. You cannot completely stamp out the idea. You can destroy the miners that run it. You can destroy the minds that believe in it, but you're never going to destroy the entire idea because you, you can't kill it fast enough for it not to spread. And I think the case is just naturally there. We've had a hundred years of massive monetary expansion, at least 50 years, but you know, depending on how you look at it, a very long time of massive monetary expansion and huge debt loads that in some way or another have to unwind. And I think those will make a case for Bitcoin, no matter how that unwinds, whether it's through inflating the currency to nothing or through massive defaults, it will show people the importance of having a system that can't be inflated. And as long as that need exists, I don't think Bitcoin will go away. Yeah, you might have a little hiccup here and there and you might have you know China shutting down all their Bitcoin miners, but Bitcoin will come right back because there are so many people out there that believe in it and they're all all over the world, all working on different projects. It can't just be turned off or shut down or litigated away. It will, it's like whack-a-mole, but there's a billion holes everywhere and governments have a couple hammers. They're not going to defeat it because it will just come back. So I don't, I just can't imagine a future where Bitcoin would trade literally to zero. I don't think that's possible. It might trade very low for a very long time and be very difficult, but it will still exist, I think. Oh, I agree with you 100%. And I think another point, too, is like, although even though it's like a huge asset and you said like, you know, the, the price could go float around zero, market cap could drop drastically. There's also, uh, you know, other silos and other industries that revolve around Bitcoin, right? So there's Bitcoin mining that's over a $15 billion, billion with a B industry, uh, you know, in one year. And so you have all these publicly traded and private companies that are mining Bitcoin. Um, you have m municipalities even mining Bitcoin in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, some other cities and, and things like that. I'm sure we'll start to, to bring it up. But you have all these companies that rely on these machines. And so they're finding solutions to make these machines last longer. And so in turn, I think that they could basically sustain for you know, some time, even if there's a slight delay, uh, whether it's like building a manufacturing factory in the United States and it takes a couple years or so, uh, maybe, you know, the hash rate goes down a bit or something like that um, or doesn't increase as drastically as less miners are coming online. But I think, you know, Bitcoiners are resilient enough. Bitcoin is resilient enough that people are going to find a way to, to make this thing work. And I think right now it's, it's almost to the point where it, it seems like it's it's almost too big and too many things are revolving around it to fail. And I think, uh, you know, there's so many people that just believe in the technology and believe in um, all the aspects of it that, you know, it's, it's not going down without a huge, huge fight. And so 
I I just think the grassroots movement of of all these people, you'll find a bunch of Bitcoiners probably get ganging together and and putting together uh, Bitcoin miners from like old computer chips, maybe that they have in their basement or something along those lines. Uh, the, the meetups might turn into like make shop uh, <laughs> make shop miners or something along those lines. But yeah, I I just don't see it kind of falling apart like it is right now, uh, or like it like it potentially could be. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just think like we're, we've come a long way and there's still a long way to go, but uh, Bitcoin isn't going anywhere. And it seems like too, in other countries, they're starting to take notice as well, right? So you have El Salvador obviously making Bitcoin legal tender and kind of revolving uh, a Bitcoin um, island, so to speak, around uh, our Bitcoin city, around Bitcoin, and even trying to mine Bitcoin with their geothermal energy. Then you also have, you know, that, that brings me to this next story. You have uh, other places in Latin America like Honduras starting Bitcoin hubs. So there's a city called St. Lucia, uh, which has turned into a local Bitcoin hub known as Bitcoin Valley. Uh, so it kind of started along the lines of following the model of Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador. So using Bitcoin in that specific area of the country before it became legal tender. Um, so yeah, I mean, Bitcoin seems to be very popular in Latin America and it seems to be increasing. So what do you think of all these countries kind of taking Bitcoin as legal tender? Do you think it's good for the space and, and good for everything? Because, you know, obviously when, when Bitcoin becomes legal tender, it also brings regulation. Um, so I think there's kind of a double edged sword there, but how do you feel about, uh, more countries bringing Bitcoin on as legal tender and uh, I guess the future of Bitcoin in Latin America. Yeah, I think for one, it's it's just a great headline and another touch for people that, oh, Bitcoin's still here. It's People are still using it, still matters. So I love when I see these announcements, even though a lot of times it is just a puff thing and you know maybe a, a lot of people, I'm sure most people in El Salvador don't care, don't deal with it, don't think about it at all. But it is another thing that just slowly pushes it forward. So I appreciate these these types of initiatives. Uh, I think things like Bitcoin Beach are great for figuring out what what could this look like if we're all using Bitcoin all the time, like we use a credit card or cash for these day to day payments. And it helps to iron out some of those issues because you once you use it every day, then you really start to learn how does it work? where are the friction points and it's really helpful probably for wallet developers and infrastructure people to understand where the the ux problems i guess exist within bitcoin so i like it for that um i read one article about the the honduras latam like bitcoin hub thing and i thought it was interesting because the article noted that this is a private initiative being run by some payment processor company and apparently what they're doing is they uh, process the Bitcoin payment from the customer, but they don't give the merchant an option to take Bitcoin. They just give them local Honduran currency. So I thought that's an interesting uh, way to kind of gobble up Bitcoin from Bitcoiners as a company because Bitcoiners are using it. The merchant then doesn't have to think about Bitcoin. They can just, you know, it's just like adding Apple Pay, like, whatever, I'm getting the same thing on the other end. So I'm just giving my customers more options. So it's a it's a no brainer as long as, you know, they have the time to set up the the payment processor, which 
time is not something that I understand most merchants have a lot of, but you know, whatever, if the payment processor is helping them or something, it's a good, it's a net positive for customers and it doesn't really change their workflows all that much if they're just getting paid in their own currency, but it's not really a, it could go further, I guess, to helping create a circular economy, uh, move people off of traditional, the traditional banking system. Really all this does, it seems like is just put Bitcoin on the balance sheet of a payment processor and uh, move, you know, currency into the merchants. It doesn't really help the merchants understand Bitcoin all that much. So that's something I'm going to start looking at more closely when I hear about these things like Bitcoin Beach. What is what does the education actually look like? Because I read also in this article that this payment processor wants to do classes about Bitcoin and educate about Bitcoin. Well, are they, you know, educating about if you hold this, it'll go up? Or are they educating about self-sovereignty and holding it, you're holding your own keys, these things that don't really benefit them probably as a business, but are good for Bitcoin. So it'll be interesting to see how these hubs develop, the ones that, you know, are really teaching people how to hold their own keys and, and use Bitcoin to its full potential and those that are using it as a way to grab Bitcoin or get a bunch of customers to gamble on it or custody Bitcoin with them or something like that. Yeah, I think, you know, you nailed it on the head that there's always like that kind of aspect where it's like, okay, is somebody in this for their own self gain, right? I think everybody in Bitcoin has probably been scammed or has at least seen some scams, especially now, uh, you know, that that have gone on in this space. And they're really wary of everything going on. And when you see stories like this, yeah, you know, you, you, you can't help but think like, okay, are they really working in their best interest of, you know, the, the merchant? And, you know, when I first saw this story, I thought maybe it was something along the lines of, you know, using Stripe because I did see the same point that you brought up where they're accepting in local currency and, uh, you know, getting paid in Bitcoin, but, uh, you know, still just receiving that local currency and not even giving the merchant the option. And so, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, things uh, maybe might move in that direction in Honduras just because of the proximity to El Salvador. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm also curious about like how many people are actually just going and paying in Bitcoin in Honduras um, for these kind of things. Uh, you know, obviously it was enough people paying to get uh, some notice for these articles circulating. Uh, but it also could maybe be a, a, another like kind of marketing gimmick almost to bring people to, to Honduras as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. I think uh, uh, Bukele said at the beginning of this year that he saw, I think, like two or three countries coming online and bringing Bitcoin as legal tender. And we saw Central African Republic already make Bitcoin legal tender, but they're kind of dabbling in their own, uh, you know, shitcoin owns CBDC, it seems like. Um, and uh, yeah, I think maybe Honduras is another one that, that gets, uh, gets on board, but um, I'll be curious to kind of see where uh, I guess this all leads. Yeah, I think insofar as it gets people to understand Bitcoin a little bit more and hopefully take self-custody of it. It's a great thing because like I loved that people were talking about how or articles were mentioning how Bukele is a dictator and he's using Bitcoin to control his population. The very nature of Bitcoin makes it impossible for him to do that if people are self-custodying it. 
So sure, if people are holding it in a government controlled wallet or whatever, then yeah, it could be just like Celsius or any of these other cash grab things that are give me your keys and I'll hold them for you safely and I'll tell you it's zero risk, but I'm going to go degenerate gamble, make a bunch of money, siphon it off. And then when the thing crashes, you're left holding the bag, just like run on the bank. So I think as far as it helps people learn how to take custody of their own money, it's better than than uh, than government fiat because government fiat, they either don't have custody of their money or they can't control the supply. So they can't you know vote to stop the the government from printing a bunch more to pay for whatever they want to pay for. So I think it's a net benefit for for that. You can much more easily, I think, self-custody Bitcoin in different amounts in different ways than you can cash. And then you also aren't subject to the inflation that you're subject to in every other fiat currency. So I think it's it's good, you know, even with these ones that are kind of doing it in an iffy way, as long as people are starting to ask more questions, learn more about Bitcoin, that's going to you know, be a net good for people in that country. Yeah, I think, you know, just the education around Bitcoin is the biggest thing, like you said, uh, learning about monetary policy and just, uh, you know, going through those those motions are, are huge. So hopefully, you know, that they, they get taught like, you know, obviously, like you said, the, the benefits of it and uh, overall just how Bitcoin could help them uh, just accepting it and using it. And so that's uh, the first step is, I guess, just implementing it to where people can accept it. Um but uh, on that note, we also have, uh, you know, some shit coinery going on right now that's, that's catching a lot of headlines. So Solana has been hacked. Uh, it was reported that I think Slope Finance was the wallet, uh, sent plain text seed phrases to external places and Phantom ETH wallets got hacked. And uh, Solana has been in the news a lot lately because not only has it gotten hacked and people lost a ton of Solana, but... Uh, their blockchain has been shut off, I think, uh, multiple times in the past couple months. Um, so what is it going to take for all these people to kind of just get away from all these shit coins and just dive into just Bitcoin and Bitcoin only? Do you think, you know, it, it's just part of the natural progression and there's always going to be some sort of shit coinery going along? Or do you think like you know, eventually all of these shit coins are going to die and uh, it'll be Bitcoin and, and nobody else will really try to make another quote unquote cryptocurrency. Yeah. So the way I kind of think about this is there's a whole fiat world that has slowly over generations pushed people because of the debasement of money into riskier and riskier and riskier assets to the point now where you know, people in my generation are struggling to think about purchasing a home because if you don't have some crazy dual income it's kind of out of the question for most metro areas to own a home at this point so to live have the living standards of our parents or our grandparents you have to work and fight so much more and i think that leads people then to look for these lottery tickets to go on robin hood and think what stocks can i buy that'll blow up and look for these niche things that are exploding in value. And the whole crypto space has looked like this for the last six years or so, has had kind of mainstream uh, attention on it as this place where people are minted overnight. I remember late 2017, some 
I don't remember where it was, but it, maybe it was New York Times, some major publication, mainstream publication that had an article title of something like everyone is getting rich except you. And it was about people buying, just buying a thousand dollars of Ethereum and it went to 10,000, you know, in a year. So people have this uh, feeling that if they buy into these shitcoin scams, that they'll get a massive pop and they'll get rich. And it's just like a lottery ticket, except that a lottery, a lot of people understand that that is against you. In a casino, people understand the casino odds are designed slightly against you. So they're not going to go in there and get rich. But shit coins are this new thing that has the same kind of returns and the same kind of flash, but this veneer of, well, if I just understand it and I'm in the community and I read the white papers, then I'll know which coins are the ones that are going to pop. If I watch the right YouTubers, then I'll hit those ones that are going to get me that 100x return. So you have people buying stupid NFTs and buying Solana and all this wasted crap because they're trying to hit it rich. And to me, this is what the fiat mentality turns into long term. People go to higher and higher risk just to stay in the same place. So this is what people are doing to, to try and keep their standard of living or try to get into a house or get the car that they want. They're gambling at this point because that's what they have to do because nothing else is getting them the yield that will beat inflation. So that's how I see the entire crypto space. What's strange about Bitcoin is it's the complete kind of opposite of that in a lot of ways that Bitcoin shines a light on that and shows what's been happening and how people have been pushed to higher and higher risk. And while it acts and moves price wise a lot like the rest of the crypto space, it's a completely different type of asset because of that hard cap and rules that can't be changed. No one can turn off the blockchain, all those things. So it's been conflated with the rest of this crypto space, but its properties make it completely different from, from all these other you know, cryptos that can come and go overnight and can pop up and down. Bitcoin is this solid, constant, perfect clock that just keeps ticking block after block that you can buy a piece of, but it doesn't have that same sex appeal as Solana and all these new coins that have all this marketing around them and all these communities that are saying this is going to go 100x and you know have these really small prices and things. I was surprised by the number of people I talked to on the tour who are not in crypto at all, who still have this unit bias and they think, well, Bitcoin's so expensive now. It's not how much higher can it go? It's it's out of my price range now. And even when they understand that you can buy a fraction of the Bitcoin, they still think for some reason, because a Bitcoin is $20,000, well, you know, it's not going to go that high. I'd rather buy the thing that's like a hundredth of a penny, because if that goes to just a penny, then I'll be so rich. And I try to explain to them the unit bias. And it's like this thing they can't wrap their head around, you know, that for a lot of Bitcoiners, it's just so simple. Like it doesn't matter. You know, units don't matter at all, but people get really hung up on that. And I think it gets them into these stupid shitcoin projects where they think they're going to, you know, be the next Bill Gates because they bought some random coin. Yeah, and I think you you kind of made two points there, right? So there's the obviously the unit bias, but also at the end of the day, 
whether you're in Bitcoin or shit coins or whatever, everybody's trying to find a way to get out of fiat. Right. So they're looking at these get rich quick schemes. And, you know, you mentioned going to meetups and still have people having unit biases. And yeah, I went to a couple meetups and I had somebody just come up to me straight up and just be like, hey, which one, which crypto is going to pop off next so I can put 50 bucks in and I can make five grand or something along those lines. And it's like, well, like I don't know, man, that's just gambling. I, you know, why don't you yeah. just put it on a sports team parlay or something? I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, so I, I mean, I think like, yeah, it's the headlines and I think uh, it's a lot of the clickbaity things and people not really understanding the technology. And then, you know, I always circle back to like the percentages, right? Like, cause you, you, you go back to the unit bias and I say, okay, well it's uh, you know, 20 K right now or whatever. Right. So it would need a 10 X to get to 200 K. Right. But you could also 10 X $20 putting in there. You don't have to buy the, the entire thing. And I think people really escape that point as well. Um, and then I always too revert back to what Corey Clipston, I've, I've heard him say from Swan, is that uh, there's only been uh, one shitcoin that has outperformed Bitcoin over uh, multiple three month periods. And that has been uh, Dogecoin because it had the initial meme run up and then it had the Elon Musk uh, tweeting about it. So two kind of like, all right, well, it had its one. But uh, which it seems like maybe, you know, it might be frequent where these shit coins have that one run up, but it's uh, obviously very, very rare that uh, they have that second run up that that beats uh, that beats Bitcoin. So, um, you know, it, it's a volatile asset and everything like that if you look at it in fiat terms. Um, but, you know, I think uh, it's the one that's obviously been around the longest and it has all, all these great properties about it. And so. I think uh, p- people should just avoid the shit coins just to quick and scan, man. I mean, like it's, I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm trying to convince people just to, just, just to just, just make it simple. I think everybody thinks like it's, it's not sexy to invest in Bitcoin anymore. So just like you said, like, it's not like a get rich quick scheme and then everybody's going to try to FOMO in on the ride up. So mm-hmm. hopefully, uh, you know, people just kind of get away from that, but um, speaking of articles and kind of, uh, you know, attention to, to Bitcoin and shit coins, uh, the New York Times wrote an article on Swan Bitcoin and Corey, who I just kind of mentioned earlier. Um, but I, I think a lot of people are kind of seeing this as a positive, but I don't know if I really see it that way, because I think New York Times is kind of playing on Bitcoin maxis. Um, so if you haven't really read the article or, you know, there is a paywall. So if you haven't found a way to get around it or didn't want to pay or anything, it goes into no one is using Bitcoin as transactions. El Salvador is making Bitcoin legal tender is a major failure, according to this article. And it takes a it takes a dive into the ESG mining FUD, of course. Um, so I don't think it uh, would be like a positive spin on Bitcoin versus shitcoin, but I think it kind of did a big disservice. Um, so how do you think, uh, I guess like the mainstream media, obviously they're not doing a great job of covering it, but do you think that it's still like swaying public opinion or do you think more people are going to waking up to the fact that, Hey, like mainstream media might not really know what they're talking about when it comes to a lot of these subjects. Yeah. You know, I will say that getting into Bitcoin and just doing my own research and reading about how it works and interacting with it and then reading what journalists say about Bitcoin really eroded a lot of trust I have in what journalists say. 
because they just butcher it so badly. And yes, it is a complex and very strange topic that's very new, but gosh, the way that they talk with such authority around something that they clearly do not understand at all is really frightening. So I'll say that first, but um, I, I read the New York Times article and I agree with you that they really don't get Bitcoin at all. But what I did like about it is that they separated Bitcoin and crypto. And that was kind of the whole point of the articles to say that there is a difference here. And while they said that both of them are terrible, at least they're making a difference so that what I'm hoping is people that are in crypto will then read that and say, oh, maybe there is something to this difference. It's not, it isn't just a couple of crazy people. There is like a whole community of people that are not into the rest of crypto and are very into Bitcoin. But you're right. I, I think they, and the rest of mainstream media does this as well. They look at the crypto space, right? And then Bitcoin is this, like they said it in the article, this subset or subculture within crypto. And to me, I, I thought that at one point and after this tour, and I met a lot of people who never got into crypto, they never considered it. They were never interested in it, but they love Bitcoin and they're so interested in that. And I kind of went through crypto to get to that point, but I've met a lot of people who just never messed with it at all and immediately realized it's all a scam, doesn't you know do what it promises. It's just a casino. And so to me, Bitcoin maximalism is not a subculture. It's a completely different culture from crypto. It's diametrically opposed. And there might be people who, and there are a lot of people I'm sure who are invested both in Bitcoin and in the rest of crypto. So there's kind of a Venn diagram there of people who own Bitcoin and crypto, but the maximalists and the Bitcoiners, they're not messing with the rest of the space. They're not part of the crypto space. It's a it's a completely different culture, a completely different um, space, I think. And hopefully publications will start to understand that and start talking about it differently. But yeah, I agree with you. For now, it seems like they still just think it's another, just another part of the rest of crypto. Just like there's people really into board Apes. There's people really into Bitcoin. There's people really into Solana. And, you know, Bitcoin's just one of those subcultures i hope that they will start to realize it's not yeah and i think the one big positive that i'm noticing around that is i'm seeing a lot more journalists pop into these bitcoin twitter spaces and you know to a lesser extent some of the other ones right you know that they're they're popping in all these uh nfts or whatever just to try to learn learn from people in the industries learn from people you know the grassroots movement just kind of figure it out that way and i think you know like you kind of stated that there's kind of two silos to to everything here right and what you said at the beginning i think is really standing out here right you went to all these eth conferences uh in at the beginning of your journey and you noticed they weren't really talking about you know the the big issues at hand they were kind of just talking about making a lot of money and so i think I, or I hope, you know, journalists kind of see the same things when they go into these Twitter spaces and they start to go around because I think Bitcoin's getting too big. There's too many events. There's too many things going around it uh, on the outskirts that 
people just can't ignore it anymore. And like journalists and publications and especially something like the New York Times, which claims to be, you know, one of the biggest publications you know, globally, uh, they're going to have to find people that are experts on this subject. And, you know, whether it starts to you know, poach people from like a Bitcoin magazine or something along those lines to continue that research and, and do stuff like that. I, I wonder if some of these publications are just going to finally just say, okay, if you can't beat them, join them and start to figure it out uh, that way. But I think, you know, this is a one step in the right direction, separating Bitcoin from crypto, but there's still a long ways away. And I think another part of that too is bringing up the ESG FUD uh, as far as like mining goes. And uh, I don't know if you, you saw this, but Riot and, uh, and other Bitcoin miners have uh, dropped production and kind of turned off quite a bit of their miners due to the Texas heat. Uh, so obviously, you know, Bitcoin mining uses energy and it uh, puts some strain on the on the Texas grid. And it's a hot summer in Texas, as is always. Um, but it, in order to kind of combat that, a lot of the publicly traded miners that have facilities in Texas turned off these miners to help uh, with that grid and help it be sustained. And uh, here at the Financial Summit, I actually had somebody bring up a point that I think is kind of interesting. Uh, do you think like Bitcoin will kind of become more seasonal, whereas like, you know, that you need heat. So and Bitcoin miners put off heat. So, uh, you know, places are going to start using them in either colder weather climates or just strictly use them in the wintertime. Or do you think that this is kind of like a one off thing and that they're going to figure out ways to boost up the grid and uh, and and make it more sustainable to keep these uh, miners running 24 seven, 365? So my understanding, like as I've talked to more home miners this year and last year, is that heat is not actually that big of an issue for the miners, like a hot climate for the miners. And like people who run them in Tampa, they don't really have that much of a problem with Florida heat. The miners are pretty comfortable at a high heat as long as you're giving them constant airflow and you're moving a lot of air over the chips. So I don't think it's like, all the miners are going to flee to cold areas or only run in the winter or something. They can run all the time. I think the bigger issue is uh, grids being stabilized and handling high loads. And that's what we're seeing in Texas is you have this really high heat. And I don't think it's so much that the miners are firing up their fans more and they're drawing more power and that's causing a problem. It's that people turn on their ACs and all these businesses are running AC and all these things. So, that's consuming a ton of power all over the state. And then they need to curtail some usage in order to keep it up because you have to load balance the grid all the time. Right. And I think this is one of those cases where like a lot of things, Bitcoin flips traditional ideas and, and traditional ways of structuring systems on their head. So if you think about the energy grid, the natural way to think about it, I think if you haven't, you know, learned anything about a grid and how I thought about it for most of my life is, well, if you need energy, then you make that energy, right? So you have this base load that's always there, that's always on. And then you have intermediate and peaker plants on top of that. So when you need a lot of energy, when people come home, then the peaker plants turn on and you always have to match that energy exactly. And the kind of strange thing about grids is you can't go over, you can't make too much power because, well, one, it really wouldn't make too much sense, but 
you have to balance the the supply and demand in real time. So if people aren't using it, you can't produce it. You would damage the grid if you tried to push it onto the grid. So you have to stick it into the ground or do whatever you know you do to store that energy or get rid of it. And you also obviously can't have too little or you get blackouts and whatnot. So like what I think we're dealing with here in Texas is you have the base load and the intermediate and the peak, but all of them on at once at full power is not enough to power everyone wanting to use all their uh, AC and different appliances on these peak heat days. And this is the case, I think, in a lot of states, because there's a bunch of states that have these programs where you can sign up, even an individual can sign up in their apartment to have a smart uh, outlet that the power company can turn off their AC because that's their biggest usage of electricity. So I know a guy in Nevada, for instance, who has this set up where if the power company needs more power for the grid, he has agreed to let them shut off his AC. In exchange, he gets a rebate on his power price or gets a cheaper power price. So there's these trade-offs and deals that you can make. So he has to suffer you know, 10 days out of the year or something, but he gets cheaper power the rest of the time as a result with you know less on those days he really wants it, he doesn't get it. So, you know, he sits there with a nice pack on his head or whatever he has to do to stay cool on those few days. So what Bitcoin I think will do is we'll show that the reason that we've built energy systems in this way is because we don't have a baseload power consumer. We don't, you know, we have consumers that uh, use power like a lot of power all the time, but they're difficult to switch on and off. Like a large factory will always use a lot of power, but to switch it on and off takes a lot of manpower and costs a lot at the end of the day for that company to do. And Bitcoin is this crazy thing where it provides a constant power draw that's very predictable, but it also has incredible intermittency. You can switch it on and off at will. So we can start to rethink how grids are developed instead of when you need energy, we turn on the peaker plants and we build it up and up. We can always be drawing a massive amount of baseload. And then when people need more power, other systems turn off. Bitcoin being the first one that immediately be able to be switched off. So we can always draw a lot of power out of very efficient baseload energy producers and then turn off Bitcoin miners as needed. So to get back to your original point, I think Bitcoin miners will eventually start to fan out to these places that have places that have really cheap power and cheap operating. And I think uptime is part of that operating equation that's kind of been missed by a lot of people. And like Rob from Upstream and Distributed Hash talks about this a lot lately that uh, uptime is something you should think about as a miner. So if you're a miner in Texas, you might be using flared natural gas and paying one cent a kilowatt hour. But if you're forced to turn off because the grid needs you to turn off, then you may not have the uptime to make it worth it for that power price. So you have to kind of take that into account. So I think miners will naturally gravitate to these places that have this balance that makes them profitable between power price, uptime, uh, cooling costs, all these different factors. And I think uptime is one that we just haven't talked about all that much. 
that's now becoming more prevalent. And I'm hoping that this creates like just a more in the mainstream, a more positive image for mining because people see that miners are turning off and letting people use their AC. It's not that miners are all going to run and then we're all going to suffer because these giant warehouses of machines are running. And a lot of these miners that think are doing it for image, they're doing it to show, look, we're, we're not just going to melt you. We want you know to be a, a good steward of the community and we don't want people to, to hate us because then the taxes come and the regulations and all these things that shut down their business. So I'm glad that these big miners are, are doing it. Yeah, I'm glad too. But I also saw, you know, my, my point wasn't, uh, I guess, seasonal as in like they, they give off or the, the miners can't handle the heat. It was exactly what you dove into, right? Is that the AC uses so much energy and, you know, obviously heating homes in certain areas of the country um, in certain places uses a lot of energy as well. But, you know, you could also theoretically heat your home with a Bitcoin miner, right? So instead of uh, having that energy just coming straight from, um, you know, a heater or something along those lines, you could have it come from a Bitcoin miner too. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, obviously it's good for, for the image, but I also saw an article from Zero Hedge too, uh, come out that that riot and some of these other Bitcoin miners, uh, they made nine and a half million dollars in credits uh, by shutting down. So I think there there's also like some incentives for them to shut down at this time too. Obviously, you know, to to not crash anything. Obviously, image. But uh, I think that they're getting some of these credits uh, too to come back, and um, they're probably like energy credits or something along those lines to help you know with the operational cost of their business. But uh, I think, like you said, it's going to just kind of help make these grids more robust. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to start solving more problems and causing which people are, uh, you know, I guess in the mainstream media and, and everything like that kind of want to point to Bitcoin and, and make it this, you know, this uh, devil thing that, that's ruining everything. So I think uh, at the end of the day, Bitcoin is going to prevail and people are just going to start waking up to the positives surrounding Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and uh, just kind of the, uh, you know, the renewable sources and, and uh, the, you know, robustness of the grid and everything like that, of, of that, that Bitcoin mining encourages. So um, I think you put it very great. And on that note, uh, we'll wrap it up here. You've been very generous with your time and uh, I really appreciate you coming out. So why don't you tell everybody, you know, a little bit about what you got going on and where they can find you? Yeah, so you can find me uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Captain Sid, S-I-D-D-H. That's my Twitter handle. So you can tweet at me or whatever. I've been posting a lot about the tour, which just concluded there. And I'll be sharing the docuseries that Swan's working on when pieces of that become available. I'll share them out there. Um, that's... That's pretty much it. I am uh, working on some Bitcoin content at a website called whatismoney.info. Uh, my idea behind that was to start with the quest people's questions around money so that you can start with the problem before getting into Bitcoin. So if you read any of that content, you'll notice that I don't really mention Bitcoin until the very end of an article, if at all, because I want people to really understand why this matters, what, what the problem is, because most people I don't don't, I think, don't understand what this problem is. And so when they see Bitcoin, they don't really get it unless they're naturally curious about it for some other reason. So 
uh, I'll be working on on that as well at the end of this year and next year likely and yeah I'm just kind of free agent right now doing some writing and hanging out meeting more bitcoiners awesome stuff well keep doing what you're doing and keep encouraging everybody to go to their bitcoin meetups and Sid thanks for all you do for the space and I hope to keep connecting with you in the future thanks so much thank you this was super fun <laughs>